Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The biggest media story of the week in the UK, at least, was the Channel 4 Times and Sunday Times investigation into Russell Brand. This special preview episode was recorded before that. We will come back to that story. We just didn't want you to think that we hadn't noticed it. In the meantime... We hope you enjoy this preview episode. The good, the outstanding, the bad, the ugly, journalism is all these things. And in a world of information chaos, it's arguable that good journalism has never been more necessary. Democracies come under pressure when media goes dark and people don't know who to trust. So that's why it's important that someone monitors the people who are monitoring us. Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. It's a deep dive into the hugely important world of media. What and who drives it? What do they get right and what do they get wrong? Expect revealing high-profile interviews and in-depth analysis as me, Anna Rusperger, and me, Lionel Barber, strive to discover the truth beyond the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine, the UK's leading monthly current affairs magazine. So that you don't miss an episode of your essential guide to trying to find the truth in a deeply confusing world of media, fake and real, today. So Lionel, once we start doing these weekly episodes, we'll interview key players in media around the world. But today is, I fear, all about you and me. So we'd better make the case for ourselves. 14 years editor at the Financial Times. I'm afraid I'm almost an FT lifer. Spent time in uh, Washington as a correspondent where we met first. We did. In 1986. And, and then I was in Brussels, worked in New York and around the world. I edited The Guardian for uh, 20 years, about the same time you were editing the FT, and I'm now editing Prospect magazine. What do you want Media Confidential to be? What kind of issues do you want to talk about? Well, it's always struck me that media is a tremendously powerful force in the world. That's how we like to believe about ourselves. I'm talking about ourselves as part of the media. And yet the media is often a very unexamined force in society, and it's quite rare for media people to be absolutely transparent, as transparent about themselves as they would like others to be. So I think it's an important force to look at, both for what it is itself and for the way that it creates or doesn't create good democracies, to put it at its highest. Yeah, I wouldn't say that the media in Britain practices a cult of omerta necessarily, but it is true that they kind of don't write about each other. Isn't that correct? That is absolutely right. When, when, when I was editing The Guardian, we had a media section. And I think by the time I stepped down as editor, I had been threatened, uh, I wouldn't say blackmailed, but certainly threatened by almost every other media group in one way or another. They just didn't like it. And they would make their feelings quite plain. Can we just get one thing on the record, Alan? I mean, even though I seem to remember cropping up in that media diary occasionally, 
I never actually phoned you to complain. Okay, you're the one exception that <laughs> proves my rule. <laughs> yeah, but it's also true of other media. I mean, you don't often in America see the New York Times writing a long piece about the Washington Post. They did actually a few months ago when the uh, chief executive actually got sort of ousted. But in general, it's a sort of, you know, we don't tell we want to go there. Absolutely. And uh, I remember one uh, venerable editor taking me out and saying, look, we don't wash our dirty linen in public. And it was a real sense of circling the wagons. You know, we, we I mean, everybody in the media today feels beleaguered. And there was a sense of why, why are you doing this? You know, we're in enough trouble. We've got enough enemies in the world without you coming after us, too. I don't know. I mean, I, I think sometimes when we were, for instance, writing about the phone hacking story, and for about two years, nobody, the FT being a notable exception, and occasionally the Independent, occasionally Channel 4 News, but by and large, that was a story that nobody wanted to touch, and people were afraid of Rupert Murdoch. And there was a sense that we were breaking the, the unwritten rules of the club in writing about... But, I mean, Murdoch's empire is a huge, huge multinational corporation. Imagine writing a story that a member of the board of BMW or, I don't know, BP or Shell or Bank of America had knowingly connived in criminal behavior and the rest of the media saying, oh, we're not going to cover that. So there was a sense that there was one rule for the media and one rule for everyone else. Yes, I remember the regulator then of the Press Complaints Commission taking me out to lunch, Baroness Buscombe, and at the end of the lunch saying, Alan Rusbridge is being very unhelpful, you know. <laughs> I mean, the other thought about just the Murdoch organization back in those days in the phone hacking, they were incredibly powerful. And I, I remember Rebecca Brooks, uh, who was then the editor, just having literally the whole cabinet bar two members around for lunch at the Conservative Party conference. So they were extremely powerful, and you can understand why newspapers and newspaper editors wanted to stay well clear. So today we'll discuss two of the key media issues of the moment, a new British boss for struggling CNN, plus the sale of the Daily and Sunday Telegraph and the Spectator magazine, and who the new owners might be. But before we concentrate on those subjects, what's been filling your inbox, Alan? Well, the main thing filling my inbox has been somebody at the New York Times pestering me for my review of the New York Times history, which is uh, the last 40 years, which I'm reviewing for the New York Times. I think they wanted somebody who was unpolluted by contact with anybody in the uh, American media. And I have to say it's a fascinating book because it precisely coincides with the, the time that you and I were wrestling with the same problems, this, you know, the impact of uh, new technologies, rethinking what journalism is, a completely new business model, the effect, buffeting effects of the financial crisis. But one thing that really struck me is that, obviously, those of us who are familiar with the story of the New York Times, it's been beset by quite a few scandals. We think of Jason Blair, the, the, the guy who was a reporter who turned out to be a massive plagiarist, the, their coverage of Iraq, which was not the finest moment of the history. But to be fair to the New York Times, they, they always wrote about this, that they, they investigated themselves, and this book certainly doesn't pull any punches. That, I think, has placed the paper in good stead because I think it is, at heart, an excellent paper. And boy, do we need an excellent paper with the prospect of Donald Trump returning as president uh, next year. Mm. 
it is a formidable news organisation and they did a fantastic job of transforming from a very print-heavy organisation into digital. I've ignored my inbox. No. Um, because I had to prepare for a speech in Zurich on Monday where I was asked to speak to the Ringier group, of which I knew not that much, but they own the tabloid Blick newspaper, plus a whole stable of newspapers in Central and Eastern Europe. And I was just talking to them about digital transformation in a newspaper and how to get journalists, and you're very well aware of this, how journalists are extremely adaptable, flexible, open-minded. They love change, especially when it's some, about some, changing some the, the newsroom. Some of them do. Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I think I'm being a little bit sarcastic. But the most interesting thing, Alan, was they had two speakers about artificial intelligence. Wow. And I'm sure in podcasts to come we're going to talk about that, how that affects the commissioning of news stories yeah. and the editing and I found that extremely interesting. We had a terrifying thing in Prospect recently. There was, there was a story about a Swedish afternoon paper, Aftonbladet, who had worked out that if you if you got a machine to produce four bullet points and use that as a box in a story, people would read the story much more deeply. I read that. I went into ChatGPT. I fed in quite a complicated piece from Prospect from the previous month, and within about 0.75 seconds it had produced four really excellent bullet points and i took it took it down to the into our what we laughingly call our newsroom because we're a very lean and mean operation and showed them these bullet points and they said yeah it's a great idea and i said okay the bad news is that was written by a robot we're going to hear a lot more about that in newsrooms. But talking about the uh, the New York Times really really feeds into the next subject we're going to talk about, the former BBC Director General uh, Mark Thompson, who was part of the turnaround operation at the New York Times. And it's just been announced that he's been drafted in to sort out the crisis at CNN. I mean, the problem at CNN is they've, they've got top anchors who have been leaving. Ratings have been plunging. Chris Licht has departed in June after a disastrous spell as chairman and CEO. It's in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and one of the things that's really interesting is that Mark's going to be in charge both of the business side and the editorial side, so no Chinese wars between the two. Which I sense he was dying to do at the New York Times. Uh, if you were editing the New York Times and he had a number of editors uh, under his spell there, they all felt his hot breath because he implied, in fact, he may even have said it once, you know I can do your job as well as mine. Sounds like Mark. Now, Lionel, why don't you set the picture about CNN and what the nature of that crisis is? Well, let me say a few words about CNN when it was a really cool, the cool news brand, say in the late 1970s, when Ted Turner, the media mogul, set it up. And and he you was know, going out with Jane Fonda at the time. I, I think he was, I'm trying actually. to remember why it was cool. But Large that, that ranch, <laughs> by the way, in Montana, which I espied from afar. This was a fantastic new idea where you'd have 24-hour, round-the-clock global news. And in a war, you remember those cruise missiles going around the corner and then hitting the Baghdad buildings. And, and then you had the Challenger exploding. And it was all live. And CNN really made a big dent into... The three major networks, ABC News, CBS News, NBC News. And, you know, you had Fidel Castro used to watch CNN, who's uh, signed up to the cable view. So was Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. Well, what happened, of course, were two things. One was 
the creation of Fox News by Rupert Murdoch in 1996, which was a, a avowedly conservative right-wing new cable news channel, and they basically ate a lot of CNN's lunch. And the second phenomenon, which is much more recent, of course, is that the business model, which is based on cable television, you pay for a subscription plus advertising that's breaking down because of digital streaming. So they're in real trouble. And I'm reminded of a politician who said that the only middle of the road phenomenon in Texas is a dead armadillo. Well, that's what CNN, it's a sort of hobbling armadillo in the middle of the road. Does it help CNN and Mark Thompson's task that Fox News, which I agree has been a formidable competitor, is in itself troubled? I, mean, I, I haven't seen the ratings recently, but, but it had this enormous embarrassment at the beginning of the year where they paid out hundreds of millions for, I mean, just crappy journalism. I mean, it, it, it was so ideologically driven, it had forgotten the basic rules of, of, of journalism and, and, and not knowingly broadcasting stuff they knew was lies. Well, it's a sting, it was a stinging legal defeat. Uh, incidentally, the chief legal officer who recommended that they go all the way to court has, has been basically moved aside. I think there is another more serious problem with Fox News. And I'm still number one, by the way, still over a million, doing much better than CNN, CNN's way down. Roger Ailes, who's the, the sort of, I think we can say this without being sued now because he passed away several years ago, the, the Al evil always genius. Helps. Always helps. Uh, the man who fought on Richard Nixon's Southern Strategy Campaign in 1968, brilliant political operator and a, a sort of evil genius in the TV screen. I think his departing Fox has lost some of its edge, but that doesn't really help CNN, both on the business side and on the, you know, what is it, what does it stand for now? And I think Mark's got to really define what CNN is in the age of streaming. So Mark Thompson, for a long time, he had a lot of jobs in British television. He, he ran Channel 4 News for a while. He ran uh, bits of the BBC, Newsnight. He never stayed in a job for long enough, really, to tell uh, how good he was. That was always, I mean, he's, he's a tremendously uh, likable and, and bright guy. But um, in terms of his director generalship, he was at the BBC for eight years. And, and um, I think that was a, a pretty impressive period, a lot of battles to fight. But his tenure at the New York Times, where he really did make a, a difference. I mean, the, the thing that's always struck me about Mark, he has a skin as thick as an armadillo or an armoured rhinoceros or whatever the metaphor is. And he's going to need it, isn't he? Well, what, what do you think, what would your advice to him be in terms of how to turn this channel around? Nice, by the way, to get a top job like that, which will pay millions at 66. Not bad. I mean, this is definitely what he's decided to do. It's his last act. I think, by the way, I should declare an interest here. I've known Mark. Uh, remember him when he was 20 years old and rejected one of my articles at ISIS magazine at Oxford. Um, but you don't, you're, not, you're not a man to bear grudges. No, no. no. It's just an early <laughs> indication of uh, editorial bias, I think, uh, which we saw later. Um, I think, I, are we allowed to break a little bit of news on this podcast? Well, we'll try it. I'm okay. sure our producers will chop it out if well, it's too exciting. Alan, there's a Merton College Oxford connection to this story. Mark got the job because partly because Sir Howard Stringer, also of Merton College, who ran CBS News back in the 80s and also then Sony, uh, the huge Japanese entertainment uh, colossus electronics. He lobbied David Zaslav, who is the head of um, Discovery, Warner Brothers, that owns CNN, for Mark to get the job. Anyway, what would I... Uh, 
what would I recommend? I think I would do two things. One, he's, he's got to actually calm the newsroom down. It was very bitterly divided. Remember that they had President Trump, oh, sorry, former President Trump, uh, now the leading Republican candidate to do the town hall. And Trump got in, you know, it was great numbers, but they didn't do a good job. And they were accused of giving Trump free airtime. And, you know, newsroom very, very divided. Also, a number of anchors have got removed. Um, Zaslav, the overall boss, said that he wanted CNN to go more in the middle. So Mark has to settle things down. He's probably going to have to make a few changes at the top. But the second and most important thing for me, and I hear this is what he may be thinking about, is think about the CNN brand. It's a bit tarnished, but still good. I think he will not want to play just in the television space, but also the digital news space through CNN.com. And it's worth remembering that one of the reasons he was very successful at New York Times is he did extra things, not just the news. He did the cooking app, he did games, etc. Talk about the politics of this, because we're coming into a really amazingly crucial political year in the US. And the gravitational pull of Fox, and uh, and Fox is not the only channel on, on, on the right, yeah, there's, there's a lot of pressure on CNN to be the corrective. I mean, we, for, for those who are not familiar with American media, it's almost the reverse of British media. So you've got the New York Times does its best to be like the BBC and to be as impartial as it can, whereas it's more like the Wild West. It's more like the tabloid, highly opinionated TV uh, in the broadcast sector. So how do you think, Mark, with that impartial background of public service broadcasting in the UK and the New York Times, what do you think he's going to see CNN's role is in this coming election? Well, he's certainly got to stand for, for the truth, for believing in facts, not alternative facts. Not I, I don't want to use fake news because it's copyrighted by President Trump. But I think he has to go back to proper reporting, original angles. He's got to have great people. I mean, obviously... Christian Amanpour has been one of the faces. Got to find the next Christian Amanpour. I don't think he can afford to go, and instinctively he won't want to do that anyway because he's not like that. He can't go to be the anti-Trump. That ground is already occupied by MSNBC, and it's one of the reasons that CNN's got into such a problem because they've been caught in the middle between MSNBC and Fox. So he's got to have a plan to how to cover the campaign, how to cover Trump. And I think he will. He should stand for the truth and the facts. This is Media Confidential. And let's move now from a significant change of management to a forthcoming change of ownership and the latest on who will grab the Daily and Sunday Telegraph newspapers. Now, how did we get here? Oh, right. Well, the uh, the Telegraph titles and, as you keep reminding us, the Spectator, uh, have been owned by the Barclay brothers, now only one brother. We have to remember that the twin David, who is the person without the red trousers, died a couple of years ago. But we've seen a lot of pictures of his uh, twin, Frederick, who is involved in a messy divorce case in the High Court and wears these extraordinary items of clothing to the court cases. Set that all aside. We'll set, set his sartorial choices aside. The Telegraph has essentially gone bust, and Lloyds Bank, which owns the debt, has lost patience and just put the titles up for sale. And amongst the potential owners are the Daily Mail, 
David Montgomery, who's got a company called National World. Montgomery was a former News of the World executive who has spent the last 20 or 30 years hoovering up local titles. Uh, A man called Sir Paul Marshall, who's a hedge fund tycoon and big Brexit supporter who has got a stake in GB News. And I think a former colleague of yours, Lionel, Sir, as we must call him, Sir William Lewis, who was at the FT, former Telegraph editor, who is said to be operating on behalf of a consortium of Saudi backers. And a late entrant is Nadim Zahawi, former cabinet minister, who is said to be acting as a middleman because the, the son of the Barclays, Aidan Barclay, apparently wants his titles back. Is that a potted summary of uh, where we are? I think it's pretty good, Alan. You, you must have edited <laughs> at some point. But I, I think that before we talk about the runners and riders, and they are very interesting, especially whether foreign money is going to come into play here, there is the most extraordinary story of how the British media never really got hold of the story that the Barclay brothers were basically bust for several years because they owned, they had this outstanding loan interest accruing, which went up to a billion pounds, and Lloyd's was sitting on it. By the way, it goes back to the 2008 financial crisis inherited from Bank of Scotland, and nobody knew about this. No, no, why, why, why was? I, I think why? I know why nobody knew. I mean, partly it was everyone was um, frightened of being sued by the Barclay brothers because they were highly litigious. But I once spent a fascinating afternoon with a forensic accountant who had been hired to look into the Barclay Brothers' net worth. Uh, And he'd spent his whole life looking at companies and was as good as they got. And he sat there with flip charts, uh, flip chart after flip chart, as he tried to uncover the nest of companies all offshore. And he, he saw the money disappear offshore. It came back onshore. And he, at the end of his flip chart presentation, he said, look, I've done this for 30 years. I've never seen a company as complicated as this. I have honestly no idea. And so that, that combination of the fear of being sued by media owners, mm. pause for ironic laugh, and the, the complete inscrutability of the finances, I think, explains your question. And I think The Spectator, which we should come to, is, is very successful, could fetch maybe 70, 80 million. I think it's being talked up a bit, by the way. Um, Lloyd's has got Goldman Sachs to run the auction of bidders. And they, they're saying they could get 600 million. I don't think so. I know the Telegraph is certainly profitable and they've managed to crawl their way to sort of a million subscribers by buying uh, some extra magazines to get subscriptions, uh, one on wedding tips, another on yachts. Uh, that's not the Daily Telegraph. It's now part of the group. I think um, the issue will be, are they sold separately? Rupert Murdoch definitely is interested in buying The Spectator. And then the second issue is, well, are there going to be any regulatory problems? Will the government sort of say, well, wait a minute, if Rothermere of the Daily Mail were to buy The Telegraph, that would be considerable concentration of media ownership in the newspaper sector? Or do you take the view, well, actually, everything's digital, so it doesn't matter so much? My understanding is that Aidan Barclay definitely wants to buy his company back. What would happen is that there would be foreign money. I I don't know whether it's UAE money, United Arab Emirates money, or Saudi money, where they would take a portion of that billion pounds, say 600 million of the debt, and then give that to Lloyd's, and then they'd have a 
ownership. Now, before we talk about some of those potential owners, Lana, why, why does it matter? Why does it matter who owns the, the Telegraph? Well, Telegraph still speaks to the Tory, the Conservative Party. They've, you know, Boris Johnson obviously was... I was going to say was Prime Minister. He was. He was also. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> I seem to remember that. Prime Minister, but also former editor of The Spectator, columnist. I was in Brussels, by the way, when he was happily writing away all sorts okay, of fantastic stories. A whole different episode. Yes, yeah. we must leave that. But it matters because the Conservative Party, uh, the top of the party, is very close to the Telegraph Group. It's the sort of house newspaper. And Boris Johnson, actually, according to Dominic Cummings, the former aide, used to refer to the Telegraph Group as the real boss, my real boss. So I think the worst owners would be the Daily Mail, not because they don't know how to produce very professionally produced newspapers, but because even though it may technically not meet a, a barrier for monopolies investigation, I think it's just a bad thing in a country for any owner to have that amount of media. Do you agree? I think I would. And Mail, by the way, is is the dominant tabloid force now. I mean, if you think of where we were talking about the Sun's influence 20 years ago, it's much, much diminished. Uh, so I, I kind of, I think, yes, we, sh we should go for, okay. keep so, the plurality. So, so probably, probably not the Mail. David Montgomery, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of because I think what he does is to asset strip newspapers and, and shove them into a, a, a big vehicle. But he, I don't get a sense that he really has a, a great care for the kind of quality of journalism that the Telegraph represents. I would say, I don't know, Paul Marshall, you probably do, but um, he's a strange creature on paper because he used to be a, a big Lib Dem backer and then became a big Brexit backer. Mm. But I can't think what he's doing only GB News. How does that fit into any concept of creating a better democracy? Do you know him? I don't. I've only met him a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, he was one of Mr. Brexit, the Brexiteers, yeah. put a lot of money into it. And I think that he'd be flying that Brexit standard so independent we should, UK. We should rule him out. Now, what about Sir William Lewis? Uh, um, what's his game here? Oh, I think he'd love to get his hands on actually owning or part owning a, a, a newspaper group and he was he was after editor. The, well he was editor and he did the westminster and then he went and left and became ceo of dow jones which was part of rupert murdoch's so empire what would his telegraph be like and and why do the saudis want to own a british newspaper i think it would be two things it would definitely be cheeky chappy a uh, little bit of tabloid with a lowercase t and I think it would be it pushed the investigative side. I mean, he was a good journalist, always a little bit on the edge when he was at the FT, was did all the big takeover stories. So he's got that sort of definitely got a popular tinge. My issue, and I've, I don't know how whether the government's going to what they're going to do about this, but the Saudis have bought Newcastle Football Club. The Saudis are, are putting money everywhere. Are they going to have a fit and proper test? They've got an indirect or, or a stake in the Evening Standard, have they not? So, but and that the, and the Independent. Yes. So the question which is, which is also is part it, owned by Russians. Well, there we go. And is it is it a vehicle for Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, wants to modernise the country? Is that is is there a problem there or not? He Certainly a, a problem, by the way. For Jordan Henderson, <laughs> who's gone off to play, the Liverpool player's gone off to play in the Saudi Football League. But 
There'll be some interesting questions there, whether the government wants to look at it or not. My view is they'll turn a blind eye. Well, that's that's one to watch. And it, as you say, I, I think it really does matter because of what you say. It's a, it's a highly influential paper on the right. And we've seen what happens when all the papers on the right get into a herd and storm behind an issue like Brexit. And it's not a pretty sight. So... I think it would be wonderful if the Telegraph could go back to the kind of paper that it was. You know, it was always a paper of the right, but its news pages were model, really. They were run by by um, somebody who, who didn't have a strong political affiliation. It was more like an American newspaper. And if it was in the Daily Telegraph, it was usually true. You're talking about Sir Max Hastings uh, as editor? or well, I think Max was a great editor of the Telegraph, but I, I think there was, I never worked there, but I think there was a man called Peter Eastwood who did the news side. Yes, he did, yeah. And so whatever the, the comment pages were saying, the news pages were pretty straight down the line, and wouldn't that be a refreshing thing to go back to? I want to say something quite controversial. Go on then. I don't have a problem with Rupert Murdoch owning The Spectator, and the reason is because he loves print, and I don't think he'd interfere with the publication itself, and I think he's got a great respect for Fraser Nelson, who has been not almost as long as you uh, as editor at The Guardian, but he's been there a long time in The Spectator, very successful editor. One of the things that makes it such a good read is that it has left and right at different perspectives. Well, I hate to fall out with you so early in our burgeoning podcasting career, but I couldn't disagree more. I, I can't see what you think, where you look around the Murdoch empire and see any evidence that the old rascal has ever managed to prevent himself from uh, interfering. I, I agree with you. I think Fraser Nelson is a, a, a very good editor and it's a good magazine, but um, I just can't think that it's a good thing for British democracy to have Rupert Murdoch owning yet another bit of our media estate. I'm so glad we could disagree on Thank something. Thank God for that. So to sum it up, Lionel, CNN and The Telegraph, what should our listeners take away from what we've been talking about today? One very important brand, and you've talked about the special place that The Telegraph occupies in the British media landscape. Who owns it will really matter and what they do with it. Are they going to take it further right? And that links to CNN in a way, because CNN's problem has been that it's been stuck in the middle, not really standing for anything, caught between the left MSNBC and Fox News, and sort of redefining that brand and what it means. And is there a place in the center? Or are you kind of a victim of the muddled middle? I think that's a big question for both CNN and the next owners of The Telegraph. And I'd like to go away thinking about the implication of a story that really didn't get reported at all this week, which is the new shadow uh, Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport who was the shadow leader of the House, Thangan Debonair. Now, I think she's likely to be the next culture secretary. And I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that over the last 13 years, that job has had something like 12 occupants, i.e. it's been a job where people really learnt on the job and there has been no consistent policy in that department, which is, a, a, I think, a really important department. So I think uh, Thangan Debonair is one to watch. Secondly, she, she just looks a really interesting woman. She was a professional cellist. And my musician friends are pinching themselves that you've got somebody in culture who actually can do a 15-minute podcast about the works of Beethoven. I mean, she's a seriously cultured person. 
but I, uh, I think she's going to be a really important person in shaping the media landscape. And I hope Keir Starmer, uh, if he wins, which I'm, I'm sure he will do, uh, keeps her there for some time so that you have somebody in that job who can make a real difference. So thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of Media Confidential with me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Media Confidential is brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air, and it's produced by Danny Garlick. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.